0: Psalm 60, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Notice the long superscript there. Um, Not the part that says, he will tread down our foes, but the part just under that, which is in really small letters, that is a part of the inspired text of scripture. That superscript is a part of this psalm. Um, It's not something editors added later, so we need to read that as well. To the choir master... According to Shushan Edith, a victim of David, for instruction when he strove with Aram Nahiram and with Aram Zobah. And with Joab, Joab on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. O oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake and have torn it o- and you have torn it open. Repair its breaches for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You've set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow. Selah. That your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for, the salvation, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Let me pray. Father, we pray that we would receive this as it is, the word of the Lord, that your spirit would bless this word to our hearing, that we would receive it as even David writes that it ought to be received, not only a song or a prayer that he sang, but that your spirit superintended for your people to sing in every era for our instruction so that we might understand who you are and how we ought to see the struggles we go through, what you're about, what you're up to in our lives, how we wrestle through that and trust you in the midst of it. We do pray that you would make us a prayerful people, that we would recognize our need to be instant in prayer our need for you we pray this in Jesus name amen well children children have you ever heard the phrase hindsight is 2020 maybe you've heard your parents say that if you're young and you wonder what does that mean what does hindsight is 2020 mean well 2020 is um, basically referring to the kind of vision you have when you see clearly. When your eyesight is what it should be. As I've grown older and the fall has affected me more and more, I now have to wear these when I read. My sight is no longer 20-20. It once was. It was actually just marginally better, by the way. And now it's quite a bit worse. When your eyes are working properly and you see properly, you're, you have 20-20 vision. And when we say hindsight is 2020, we mean that it is often when we look back on events in our lives that we see the truth of what was really happening and maybe even how we should have seen it or handled it differently than we did. In the mar- midst of various life events, we don't always see things properly. Our vision is often occluded particularly by suffering. It is afterward that we often begin to see it clearly. That's true particularly, as I said, in the midst of suffering. We know that we're sometimes going through hard things. And we may know that the Lord is kindly, though severely, disciplining us in some way. But often, it is only later that we truly see what it's all about. You all know that, or at least most of you know, that I've been in the midst of making a series of missionary biographies for film, um, and I was just on the islands of Vanuatu. Now, if you've never heard of Vanuatu, don't worry, I hadn't either. Uh, Vanuatu is a set of islands that used to be called the New Hebrides. Um, When it left colonial rule in 1979, it changed its name to Vanuatu. Um, It's a set of islands. They are between Australia and Fiji. Um, And so I was on Vanuatu, and I was staying on the island of Tanna most of the time. We flew out to some other small islands as we were filming the biography of John G. Payton. John G. Payton was a 19th century Scottish Presbyterian minister or missionary who went to the New Hebrides or to Vanuatu. Um, His first island of service was the island of Tanna, He was there for four tumultuous years. One of the spots we visited was the grave of his first wife and son. His first wife, Mary, and his son, Peter. In the first couple years there, he buried them both. He was there for four years. He suffered much, and eventually he was run off by the islanders, the people who lived on Tanna due to the people of Tana thinking he was the cause of disease. After he left, four years, he was there four years, he left, he went throughout Europe and Australia for four years, raising money for the missions work to which he could eventually return. During that time of fundraising, he began to realize, at least in part, what the terrible injustice and suffering on Tana had been all about. So you understand this picture, maybe you don't, his wife and son are buried there. The island is such a horrific spot that he has to lay on their graves overnight, not because he's mourning, though he was, but to protect their bodies from being eaten by the cannibals there. To go through that for four years and then to wonder what it's all about must have been difficult. And it was while he was out preaching in various churches in Europe and Australia that he began, at least in part, to understand what it was about. In God's providence, it was really the scars of those sufferings on Tanna that lent so much weight to what he was saying in the churches. And there was a huge harvest of ministers that went to the mission field as a result. In fact, in his own Presbyterian denomination in Scotland, one in six pastors... Left the church and went into missions. Imagine that one in six. He did not know what the Lord was doing at the time he was suffering, but he later began to gain perspective, hindsight is twenty twenty. Now perhaps you'll have answers soon to your own suffering. Perhaps you'll not have answers soon. But we can be assured that the Lord is in it. King David understood this truth. David, the king of Israel, understood this. He sang Psalm 60, actually, by beginning with the summary of the problem, if you see there, to the choir master in that superscript, to the choir master. He goes on, it's a mixture of David for instruction, not just for David, but for our instruction. When he strove with Aram Nahiram and with Aram Zobah. In other words, here you go. There is some kind of war that's happening between enemies and David and his kingdom Israel. So we saw the problem and then noticed the solution. And when Joab, on his return, struck down 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. So this psalm begins with a superscript telling you both the problem and the solution. That David later came to see. In other words, it's a psalm reflecting back upon his painful experience after he saw the resolution of it. Look at the, as I said, the superscript. It's for our instruction right there in the middle. When he strove with and when Joab returned and struck down the 12,000. So as we consider David's song reflecting on his painful trial and the Lord's deliverance, as we move through the main text of the song, I want you to see it really in three parts or three movements. First, in verses 1 through 5, we're going to look at Israel's experience and David as their king, as their federal head, if you will, of the country, Israel and David's experience of rejection by the Lord. We're going to see that in the first five verses. You understand whenever the king of Israel is speaking, he's often speaking not only on his own behalf but on behalf of the people. Israel's experience of rejection by the Lord in verses 1 through 5. The second part is going to be in 6 through 8, verses 6 through 8, where the Lord rejoices in his rule. So Israel expe- experiences rejection by the Lord. And then in verses 6 through 8, the Lord rejoices in his rule. And then in verses 9 through 12, third part, Israel's redemption by the Lord. The Lord redeemed them. So we'll look at those three movements. Let's look first at Israel's rejection by the Lord, this experience of rejection they had. Look at verses 1 through 5. In fact, actually, let's just slow down and look at verse 1. O oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O, oh, restore us. Now, you notice two different O's there. Just as a little grammar lesson. The first O, O oh God, vocative. That's when you're actually addressing someone, the next O O H O exclamatory, oh like, oh I'm suffering in this way. Oh I need your help. Oh Keaton, I just saw Keaton. So oh Keaton, right? I'm ex- I'm addressing you. Notice the difference. We often mess that up, and so in songs we're singing weird sort of things. But oh God, you have rejected us. Here he's crying out to Him, broken down our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. Listen, as you think about David and Israel's experience of rejection by God, let me make um, really three comments about his response. The first comment starts right here in verse 1. David prays, Oh God. Notice that? He is in the midst of suffering, and the first thing that he does in the midst of suffering, particularly a suffering that feels like rejection, it's the kind of suffering he has here, he prays, Oh God, you have rejected us. Now look down at verse 5. The last phrase in verse 5. The last, well, it's like the last part. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. See, oh God, you've rejected us. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. Look down at verse 11. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. See, he's just praying. As David endures suffering, he prays. Listen, David knows that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He knows that If God's people seek the Lord, the Lord will be found by them. Listen, Sovereign Grace, this is one of the great lessons of the Psalter in general, the Psalms. The Lord's people often enter the dearest experience of nearness to the Lord that they ever experience when they realize they have nothing left but the Lord. And when you realize the Lord is all you have left, then you also find out that he's all you ever really needed in the first place. Children, I exhort you, children, to make prayer your go-to while you're young. Build the habit now. Go right to prayer every time. Become someone who is ever before the face of the Lord in prayer. Sovereign grace, I commend to you the reading of the Psalms every day. I'm not, saying don't, I'm not saying merely read the Psalms every day, but I would tell you, you ought to read Psalms every day with whatever other Bible reading you're doing. Learn to sing them. Pray through them. The Lord gave us 150 songs. You ever thought about that? The Lord superintended by the Spirit the writing of 150 songs for his church to sing. And they will shape your prayer life if you're regularly in them. The Psalter will cause your heart and mind, if you will, to harmonize with God's character and God's promises and God's work. Prayer should be a nearly constant instinct. Was that not true with our Lord Jesus Christ? It was his habit to withdraw to pray. At his most difficult moments, he was ever in prayer wasn't he if jesus the son of god who has the spirit without measure needed to pray in the face of life's difficulties and the temptations of sin how much more do we the one who is holy harmless and undefiled the one who is before all things through whom all things exist, in whom all things hold together. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power in taking humanity to himself and walking among us needed to pray to be sustained in suffering. Needed to pray the lawgiver. The law is the expression of his character. Needed to pray in the face of temptation to sin. If that's true, how much more do we need to pray? How much more do we need to pray? If Christ cried out to the Father for deliverance in the face of suffering, we certainly need to do the same. Sadly, we are often like the disciples, not like the Lord Jesus, which is why we needed him to save us. Because we're often like his disciples who in, who after Jesus commanded them to stay awake and pray, do you remember that? You need to stay awake and pray because temptation is coming. Stay awake and pray. What'd they do? Fell asleep. Isn't it sad that the best way to make sure church folks miss a meeting is to call it a prayer meeting? If I want you to come, we'll have food. If I don't want you to come, we'll call it a prayer meeting. We see it in our grace groups. Socials, packed out. Prayer nights, mostly empty. What does that say about us? Why do we imagine that we can stand up to the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil on our own? Why do we imagine that we can? If we really knew the reality of the spiritual battle we're in, that's what I'm trying to explain to you, you are at war with principalities and powers you cannot see. And if we really understood the reality of the spiritual battles we we're in, then we would be clamoring at the doors of prayer meetings to get in. Clamoring. And our knees would be worn out from casting ourselves before the Lord. There's a reason that the church in Acts 2 is devoting themselves to the apostles teaching the doctrine and the prayers. Not to just praying the formal called prayers of the church. They devoted themselves to it. Because they knew they needed it. So David's instinct in the midst of this is to pray. Notice David's prayer, though, secondly, is grounded in his faith in the Lord's providential work. So look at verses 1 through 3 with me again. Notice the way he says you over and over and over again. Oh God, you have rejected us. Assuming the you there, you've broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you that they may flee to it from the bow that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. O God, you have rejected us you have broken down our defenses, you have been angry, you have made the land a quake, you've torn it open, you've made your people see hard things, you've given us drink that's made us stagger. See, David fully understands that there's an enemy army attacking Israel. What we're talking about is the Edomites attacking Israel. While David is away at the Euphrates. Protecting and taking land, if you will, while he's there at the Euphrates fighting in one battle, the Edomites have come into Israel the other direction and have attacked them. And what does David say about it? He doesn't say, Why do the Edomites do this and the Edomites do that and the Edomites do this? Why did you do this to us? Why did you God do this? He believes that the Lord has decreed every event and detail of our lives. There is not a hair that falls from your head that is unknown by your Father. Have you ever just stopped and thought about that phrase? Not a hair. He has numbered them all. I have no idea how many hairs are on my head. I know it's considerably less than once we're there. The Lord has numbered them all. Not one falls without his care, apart from his decree. That's how involved God is in every detail of our lives. There's not a day of your life that God fails to decree. Not one moment of one day. God is never frustrated, He's not in the heavens wondering what's coming next. David's prayer begins with the belief that the Lord is sovereign over all. His prayer life is grounded in his unshakable faith that the Lord has providentially decreed everything whatsoever comes to pass. But that conviction of God's sovereignty is not really a comfort if you do not also believe that God is good. You hear that? God being sovereign is no encouragement to you if he is also not good. Oh, so he sovereignly disposes of all things and who knows if that's good or not. So David's third conviction, look there. David's prayer, he's not only convicted he needs to pray, not only is he convicted that um, the Lord is sovereignly working all things out, but he believes he's working them for his good. His prayer is grounded in faith that the Lord loves his people. How do we know that? Look at verse one again and note the contract contrast. Oh God, you have rejected us. Do you hear that? I mean, that's a strong that's strong language, isn't it? You, God, have rejected us, your covenant people. You've rejected me, the man after your own heart. You've rejected us. Now look at the contrast, verse five that your beloved ones may be delivered. That's a striking contrast, isn't it? We've been rejected by you. We're your beloved ones. David believes the Lord has decreed this difficult providence for the good of his people. He does not mean that the Lord has fully and finally rejected himself nor the people he means that the experience looks like rejection from the lord and it feels like rejection from the lord but ultimately he understands that we're the beloved ones he feels though like the lord has rejected him you've gone through that i imagine if you're young maybe not maybe so But the older you get, at some point you will go through something where you feel like the Lord has rejected you. Look at Psalm 60, verse 10. Down to verse 10. Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. See, you're not with us. That's why we're being defeated. Have you rejected us? If the Lord went with Israel's armies, they would win. But they've lost. So God has withdrawn from them in some way. In fact, the withdrawal of God's favor in this battle has led David, feeling the Lord has rejected them. We see this kind of speech about rejection from the Lord in other Psalms. For example, in Psalm 77, Asaph prays, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? You might know that experience. That's how the pain of suffering can feel to us. It feels like the Lord has spurned and rejected us like his favor is no longer upon us and his love for us has ceased, like he's forgotten to be gracious to us and has shut up his compassion against us. We remember that our Lord Jesus even prayed, don't we? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But church, I ask, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary, worn out when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline, in which all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who have disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, those earthly fathers, as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his Holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Isn't that true? But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. The Lord disciplines those whom He loves. We often wonder in the midst of suffering if the Lord has rejected us, but David clearly recognizes. That he is still God's beloved. For every father disciplines the sons he loves. Now how do you know? This becomes the objection. How do you know if the Lord's felt displeasure in your life? Is him disciplining his sons? And not just the suffering that all sorts of people experience in this world because of the fall how do you know? Well, here's the first question. Do you believe the gospel? In other words, do you believe that God created you, that you sinned against his law, you transgressed against his holy law, you rebelled against him, that you rightly deserve his just condemnation for that, that he also promised to send a savior whom he did, our Lord Jesus Christ, who kept his law in every way in which we failed to, who paid the penalty due to us at the cross, who rose from the dead conquering sin and death, and who ascended his right hand where he ever rules and reigns and intercedes for us. Do you believe that that Jesus is the only hope for the forgiveness of your sins? That he is the only hope of salvation you have? That it's only his righteousness being credited to you, that gives you any chance of standing before God in heaven? Do you believe that? If you believe that gospel, then likely the suffering you're going through is God's discipline to you as sons, if you really believe it. In other words, if you have true faith. Secondly, do you see the fruit of that professed faith in your life? For if Christ is indeed yours, then his spirit is remaking you into his image through faith. Note that the discipline of the Lord yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to who? Those who are trained by it. Did you hear that? The suffering of God's discipline, the suffering of God's discipline does not yield the agitated fruit of bitterness to those who are being trained by it. It does not cause God's people to reject his word, his church, and his rule. It does not cause the Christian to become like Job's wife who calls out um, to him, curse God and die. It does not cause the Christian to remake God in their own image so that they can cope with life as completely innocent parties who are constantly the victims of trials and circumstances caused by others. David sees Israel attacked by a wicked enemy, and David knows the Lord is angry with him and with Israel due to their sin. He knows that. He knows that. It's our sin that brought this. I deserve every bit of it. People laugh because I'm not the only person who's ever done this. I don't know who else does it, but sometimes I'll comment, how are you? And my response is, better than I deserve. And people say, oh, why do you say that? And my response is, always the same. I deserve to be in hell. Everything short of that is better than I deserve. Always. No matter what I'm going through. Do you really believe that? Or are you constantly a victim? You know, I'm innocent. I don't deserve any of this. I deserve every bit of God's wrath and more. Every bit. But I'm clothed with Christ, so I'm saved, I'm forgiven, I'm declared righteous. Every bit of suffering that comes my way is God's discipline to make me holy. I'm I'm never the victim, I'm always the one in need to be reshaped into the image of Christ. However the Lord wants to bring it, that's his sovereign pleasure. So Christian, the discipline of the Lord, though deeply painful, strengthens our resolve to walk in righteousness. It encourages us to trust the Lord even more than we once did. And thus the fruit which comes from it is a peaceful sense of the Lord's presence with us as we grow in godly character and hope. If that's happening in the midst of your suffering, then you're those who are being trained by it. Second movement of the psalm. Let's look at that. The Lord rejoices in his rule. Look at verse 6 through 8. God has spoken in his holiness. And depending on the translation, it could be from his sanctuary. With exaltation. Now this is the Lord speaking. Notice the quotes. The translators have given you those quotes. It's the Lord who's now going to speak. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Succoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my washbasin. Upon Edom, I cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I shout in triumph. There's a couple of translation issues there. But um, like is... Is the Lord provoking Philistia sarcastically to try to shout and triumph over the Lord or is the Lord shouting and triumph over Philistia? We don't, we don't ultimately know. Guys, argue about that. Um, is it in his holiness or from his sanctuary? We don't, guys, argue about that. But the point is always the same. The point is always the same. In the middle of this psalm, the Lord speaks. And he speaks in his holiness or out of his sanctuary. And he speaks of his own rejoicing. Notice that. With exaltation. With exaltation. Here's the Lord saying, I'm rejoicing. I'm delighting. And what does the Lord delight in? In his sovereign rule over all these nations. In other words, with delight, I rule all the nations of the earth. That's essentially what's being said here. God disposes of the nations as he sees fit, and it's his good pleasure to do so. That's why Judah is my scepter. I have chosen to bring my messianic king through the tribe of Judah, and that's why Edom is where he casts his shoe. You guys catch that? Like a slave in a corner, you come in your house, you have a slave over in the corner, different culture, and you throw your shoes at him. It's essentially what he's saying about Edom. Edom is the country that's attacked Israel that apparently in this psalm looks to have defeated Israel while David is away. And the Lord's like, I cast my shoe at at, at Edom like a slave in the corner. I rule over them. My messianic king is coming from Judah. You feel defeated right now? My messianic king is coming from you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. God disposes of the nations as as he sees fit, and it's his good pleasure to do so. That's what he's saying. Why is that good news for David? Because if the Lord has chosen in his good pleasure to set his electing love upon David or upon you, then what is there to fear? What is there to fear? Even further, is it not good news that the Lord rejoices in? Listen, the Lord rejoices in, he delights in, sovereignly disposing of this world and your your life in such a way that you're saved as his beloved? Why else would you be his beloved? Why else would you be those whom he elects to save if not for his unprovoked love and unmerited grace? God is not looking down from eternity going, man, that's a good one you understand that? He doesn't look at you and say, man, you are so lovely. I can't take my eyes off you. I have just been provoked to fall in love with you like some pagan deity. God loves you because that's who he is. And if he's disposed, if you will, sovereignly of all history so that he might save his people, you being one of them, How is that not good news to you? That's why Paul breaks out in doxology in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world in that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. God has purpose to dispose of all nations as he sees fit, and he delights in his purposes. Now dwell on this, beloved. Dwell on this, Christ people. God disposes of all events in world history to work out getting the gospel of Jesus Christ to his people, and you're one of those people. Is that not stunning to you? God rejoices in governing his world in this way for our good and his glory. And David understood that. understood that. Slow down sometime. You see the news 24-7. Maybe one of the worst things that ever happened to us culturally. Not only on constant cable news. But via social media. And you are growingly anxious about the world around you, no surprise. And the older you get, the more of that stuff you consume, and the more you start saying, the end of the world is here, right? Like, you just do, it happens. And if it's not, man, please, Lord, make it so, right? You understand. Slow down for a moment. And recognize in the midst of everything you're seeing, no matter how crazy it looks, and I know the stuff that comes out of Sacramento can look unhinged. No matter how crazy it looks, slow down for a minute and recognize that God sovereignly disposes. It is his delight. He rejoices in sovereignly disposing of all the nations as he sees fit so that he might save his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And you're one of those. Stop panicking about it. That leads to our third movement. Israel's redemption by the Lord. Verses 9-12. through Look there. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Know what David thinks about the ability of his own armies to overcome the enemy armies. What does he think? Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. We are going out, and apparently without you, because we are being defeated. And if you were with us, we would win. The salvation of man is vanity. There is nothing I can do to rescue myself from the circumstances which God has sovereignly brought to bear in my life. All I can do is cast myself ultimately upon him and trust him. Now that does not mean that David is saying we should lay back passively and wait for God's blessings to come. He's saying, look, with God we shall do valiantly. I'm going to get up and be active. We're going to get our, if you will, soldiers together, and we're going to go to war on Edom. But if you aren't with us, we will be an utter failure. The whole thing that turns the war is not the brilliance of King David and his strategy. It is not the strength of his armies. It is none of that stuff. The only thing that leads to our victory is whether God is with us or he's not with us. That's it. That's the determinative question. I don't care what you're facing in life. If God wants you to be victorious in that situation, you will be. If he doesn't, you won't be. And in both cases, blessed be the name of the Lord because he's disposing all things for your good and his glory. Period. Full stop. David understood that he could muster the greatest army. But if the Lord is not with them, it's all in vain. He cannot save himself. He needs the Lord to be with him. As Charles Spurgeon rightly said, God with us, God with us is better than the strong battalions. But if he withdraws his presence, we tremble at the fall of a leaf. Do you understand that your best efforts, your greatest earthly consolations are all impotent without out? power if the Lord is not with you on the flip side if the Lord is with his people then the nations of the earth can rage and the peoples can plot in vain they can all take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed and it's all in vain he who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord holds them in derision for he has set his king on Zion his holy hill and the nations will be the heritage of that messianic king and the ends of the earth will be his possession. The greatest powers on earth and the greatest powers, if you will, in the heavenly places can all ally against the Lord and his church and we will march victoriously on for Christ is the Lord and he is with his church. Stand that? The gates of hell cannot prevail against us. I know you may experience seasons in which the Lord seems to have withdrawn his favor. But if you are his, then you need not fear the future. You do not know what the future holds, but you do know the one who holds the future. And you know that he rejoices, listen, you know that he rejoices over disposing all things for your good and his glory. That's why in this most difficult moment, in his most difficult moment, sorry, Jesus, when he cried out the what we call the cry of dereliction in the face of rejection, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He could then also pray, into your hands I commit my spirit. He knew the Lord was with him, even in the darkest moment of his life. And friends, we need to know the same. We need to believe this is true as the church goes forward on mission. Not just know this is true as we go around facing suffering ourselves and licking our wounds, if you will. Thank God he's sovereign and good. Our suffering is terrible. Glad to know that. But actually, a step further than that, Paul didn't just suffer and trust the Lord. He offered himself for the sake of Christ so the nations might know him. So this is true as the church goes forward on mission to make Christ known to the ends of the earth. Do you remember what Christ said? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey everything I've commanded you, for surely, listen, For surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Do we believe the Lord is with us as we make Christ known to friends and neighbors and family members and coworkers? Do we believe he's with us? Do we believe he's with us when we're limping along in suffering, rejoicing in him, recognizing our weakness, and saying... It is not my job as a Christian just to sit back and passively absorb all this suffering and hoping one day it goes away. It is my job as a Christian to go forward and to say, with God, we shall do valiantly. I'm going to open my mouth about Jesus. Do we believe he's with us when we do that? Do you believe he's with us when we send forth missionaries to the nations? Do, we believe, do you believe that he can overcome the, binding influ- excuse me, the blinding influence of Satan and the hardness of man's heart. Do you believe he can do that? I began with John G. Payton. Let me end with him. After four years and much suffering on Tana, four years of suffering on Tana, it seems not one person was converted. He went to an island where he suffered disease, where he sometimes had to hide in trees while the people tried to kill him. Ready to lay over the buried bodies of his wife and child to prevent them from be- being eaten. And he may not have even seen one convert. After recruiting more missionaries, he then returned to one of the other islands, which was right by there, which also had to- the privilege to fly to, called Aniwa. Flew to that island to preach the gospel. He lived there for 15 years with his new wife. Imagine choosing to marry him in the intervening four years. Margaret did. You can actually read her autobiography as well, Margaret Payton. He returned to to Aniwa with his wife to preach the gospel. As we traveled around those islands, um, we went to several of the islands. Do you know what we found everywhere we went? Every island we went to, we found Presbyterian churches, Peyton's denomination. And they were full. And they knew John Peyton's name. And they knew the names of the other missionaries from his denomination that came. And most importantly, they knew the name of Jesus Christ. And they rejoiced in him. It took seven years of suffering on those islands, three years in Aniwa, the loss of his first wife and child before Peyton ever saw one convert. And now those islands bustle with churches. He went on to lose four more children there, by the way. So five children and one wife died on the field with him. We saw the headstone, actually, of two of those children next to the church building where the gospel took root and they began to worship. I can't even imagine the dark days he must have experienced. I can't even fathom it. I couldn't handle being on one of those islands for one day. It was miserable. (laughs) Backwards and humid. It's terrible. This man lived there 15 years on one of the islands. Four years on another. Buried a wife and five children. And a grandchild, by the way. He must have experienced dark days, and he must have wondered if the Lord had rejected him must have but the lord was with him and so he did valiantly in sovereign grace of the lord was with us then we shall do valiantly as well spurgeon said this i'll close here we will not be ashamed of our colors afraid of our foes or fearful of our cause The Lord is with us and we will not hesitate. We dare not be cowards. We go forth trusting he's with us and with us we shall do valiantly. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would cause us to trust that our Lord Jesus Christ is with us and that in the midst of circumstances that are trying, that cause us to feel as if you have rejected us, that certainly look circumstantially like you are not with us. Help us to understand that we should not regard lightly the discipline of our Lord, but that we should, though experiencing very difficult times of pain, rejoice in the fact that you are sovereignly at work for our good so that we would yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness, so that we would share in your holiness, so that we would be conform to the image of your son and may we not just passively sit back waiting for redemption from our suffering to come but may we go forward knowing with the lord we shall do valiantly and make christ known both here and to the ends of the earth we know you have not left us here to lick our wounds you have left us here you have You continue to tarry, Lord Jesus, because Christ is not known in all the earth. We pray that we'd be faithful to that end, that Jesus' name would be exalted in and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.